0: To historians is granted a talent that even the gods are denied to alter what has already happened. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone, and the Libertarian Institute. Today, I am joined by Mark Weber. He is the director of the Institute for Historical Review, an independent public interest educational center in Southern California that works to promote Peace, understanding, and justice through greater public awareness of the past. In particular, the IHR strives to increase understanding of the causes, nature, and consequences of war and conflict. Mr. Weber, thank you so much for your time. Where is the best place to find the Institute for Historical Review's collection of work?
1: The best place is on our main website, which is IHR.org, IHR.org. And you'll find a vast library of material, uh, uh, very extensive. We have an audio section, a video section. Uh, and then uh, we also have an IHR store section which offers a wide variety of books and discs that I think people will find of interest, but uh, it's very helpful to use the search feature because uh, using that one can find things related to different subjects. Many articles also have links to other things. We have a links section as well, so I urge everybody to take a look at that. We update the main website uh, several times a week. Uh, We also have a uh, free uh, IHR news and comment email service, and we send out roundups of items that we think are of more topical or uh, interest to people. So I urge everybody to take a look at that.
0: Absolutely. The link to IHR.org will be in the description below. Mr. Weber, when I think of history, the definition I get is a chronological record of events as of the life or development of a people or institution, often including an explanation of or commentary on those events. One might say, well, history, that is boring stuff that's already happened. I'm a progressive. I care about the future. I don't want to be tied down by the past. Why does history matter?
1: Well, that's what we try to uh, deal with constantly, because one of the features of American life today, particularly uh, nowadays, is the big emphasis on me, how I feel about this. And there's a huge tendency that one person's truth is just as good as another person's truth. But the emphasis on the me uh, means that we uh, 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 it's a strong tendency to just forget about, as you say, the past. what Who cares, cares about the past? In fact, many Americans uh, have for a long time taken a certain amount of pride in feeling that the United States is not like other countries and that we're not burdened by the heavy hand of history. We just get the job done. We just go ahead and solve problems. We just make life better, and we don't care what the customs, the uh, uh, habits of people in the past, monarchies, or hierarchies, or all that kind of thing, that doesn't matter, but it does matter. And uh, it's especially important right now, because America today is embarking, and has been for some time now, embarks on a a huge effort to rewrite history, uh, to uh, uh, remake, actually, America, or redefine America. Uh, we're often accused of, uh, well, you people want to rewrite history. Well, of course, history is always being rewritten from perspectives that are new insights, uh, new evidence, but also just a new perspective. And nowhere has we've seen in, uh, I think, in recent years, such a rewriting of history as we're seeing right now. Uh, An example of that is just recently, the New York Times launched this so-called 1619 project, which is supposed to redefine uh, the decisive date in which America was defined as a country. And for the New York Times in this big project, the whole issue of the New York Times Magazine was devoted to this, 1619, that is when the first black slaves were brought to America, that's supposed to define America. But it's much more complicated than that. But the big thing is that how we look at the past is very important how we look at ourselves in the present and how we look at our future because even if people say they're not driven by any particular ideology they just get the job done everyone in uh, individuals and a society operates on the basis of certain premises certain prevailing uh, principles that we all sort of understand or which are given to us by the media and whether we acknowledge them or not Uh, they still play a very important role. And by understanding history, we uh, we can uh, measure uh, the validity of all sorts of premises in our own society much better. But certainly this is important at a time in America today where we're going into a whole new era in which just in the last 10, 15, 20 years, American uh, figures of the past who were revered and honored are now uh, their statues are being torn down, They're being, we're told that they were terrible people. That's a, a pretty dramatic thing. And so making sense of our own time, and even more than that, making sense of the future is only possible if we understand the trajectory of uh, the past.
0: There was a great economist at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Hans-Hermann Hoppe wrote a uh, paper titled The Libertarian Quest for Grand Historical Narrative. He said, because the general public is not used to or incapable of abstract reasoning high theory and intellectual consistency but it forms its political views and convictions on the basis of historical narratives i.e of prevailing interpretations okay. of past events and hence it is upon those who want to change things for the better liberal libertarian future to change and correct such interpretations and propose and promote alternative revisionist historical narratives so mm-hmm. whether you love or hate what he said about You know, being part of the uh, classical liberal libertarian view. He's still emphasizing the fact that what we know today and how we make decisions is based off word association games, Hitler, bad, Churchill, good. And when those are put into, you know, the commonplace today, it's how we make our decisions with whatever we associate uh, happened in the past. Right. At IHR, uh, you uh, discuss revisionist history. What is revisionist history, and what does it mean to revise historical events?
1: uh, Before you get into that, I I want to highlight a a phrase you use, this importance of the narrative. This is really important. It's really not just the facts of history, it's the narrative. It's the overall sweep of how we see the relationship between the past and the present. To uh, to, To make a generalization, I would say in America, a very common widely accepted narrative by people who call themselves conservatives as well as liberal democrats and republicans both accept is that uh, is the idea of america as a country dedicated to a proposition of equality of universalism and that we've seen this Trajectory over American over American history in which uh, voting used to be restricted to a small number of people, and then the property qualifications were done away with, religious qualifications were done away with. Eventually, uh, women got to vote, blacks were uh, uh, able to vote. And with the idea that America is a country that's a great country and always getting better, always striving, always coming closer to this ideal of ever greater equality and ever greater greater universalistic society, that's a very, very strong narrative that's widely accepted in America, and it's the narrative also behind Uh, The Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, gay rights movement, all of those movements are uh, in in keeping with this narrative that there's always one more battle to be fought in the never-ending struggle for ever greater equality, ever greater inclusivity uh, in American society. Now, that's a narrative that's basically accepted. Um, Now, whether one agrees or not, that that narrative is so powerful and so that, that the discussions that take place in the political sphere and social sphere and so forth all refer back to that, even implicitly, oftentimes, because it's widely accepted. But to go back about um, uh, the, the second part was about why does, uh, well, you, you phrase it again for me. Um, um,
0: so, so I the uh, part where I asked you, what is revisionist history? Or well, yes. Back to okay, the quote.
1: revisionist history is yes. really uh, all real history is revisionist history. If it wasn't, uh, we wouldn't be writing new books about history all the time. We're co- Historians are always writing, in a sense, revisionist history, because revision, re- re- revision just means to, from the Latin, to take another view. And we always take uh, new views of history based on the uh, operating, prevailing premises and ideology of the time. In an era in which religion was very important, Christianity was very important, the past, the present, everything was looked at from that point of view. In a similar way, the kind of narrative of equality, liberal democracy, which is the prevailing ideology of America and Western Europe today, uh, history is looked upon from that point of view. And uh, and so uh, history is constantly being reevaluated from the point of view of not only uh, perspective, ideology, but also on the basis of new facts. We learn new things that we didn't know before about history. I mean, there's just fascinating things happening all the time. One of the most interesting, as a kind of a footnote in a sense, was several years ago, a very sophisticated clockwork uh, device was found in the Aegean Sea in Greece that showed a very, an un uh, before up until that time not understood level of sophistication about astronomy and about mechanics with gear wheels and so forth. That showed a far higher level of sophistication in ancient Greek society than people had realized. Um, And anyway, there's other examples that one can give about that. Um, But more than that, it's not just um, the uh, perspective. It's also what we emphasize. It's not that uh, people who who differ about history lie. It's that they emphasize different things. Uh, Today, in recent, I mean, one example is Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was a popular president of the United States when he was re-elected in uh, 1912 and then re-elected elected in 1912, re-elected in 1916, got America in the First World War. After the dismay after the First World War, then he was not very popular. Then his popularity rose again when America got in the Second World War because he was considered a person who was progressive and understood America's important role in the world. Now Woodrow Wilson is in uh, his reputation is very bad because he was a racist. He was a person who was in, who reimposed segregation in the federal uh, uh, bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., uh, but he's considered bad. And there's very little discussion about, well, what used to be the main criticism of Woodrow Wilson, and that was his... I would think um, well, unrealistic foreign policy, and involving America in the First World War and its role in the uh, peace after the First World War. But my point is that Woodrow Wilson's reputation has gone up and down over history, depending on what the prevailing values and outlook is of 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 the time we're talking about. In 19, at the beginning of the first uh, second World War, America's role in the Second World War. I think it was Warner Brothers, MGM, put out a big. Uh, A motion picture, color motion picture, praising uh, Woodrow Wilson to try to boost up his popularity, and it did a lot of good. Uh, Our narrative of history is very heavily influenced by Hollywood, by motion pictures, by television, uh, by what our educators tell us. And so uh, that, uh, uh, I mean, when when Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States, he had a picture of Robert E. Lee in the White House and he wrote a letter, famous letter, in which he explained why he admires Robert E. Lee. Well, that's unthinkable now, practically. I mean, there's this Robert E. Lee, his statues are being taken down all over the place. He was a slaveholder. He's now called a traitor, a bad guy, and so forth. And if there's any real dramatic rewriting or revision of history, it's not merely in tweaking history, it's in uh, tearing down Uh, the once honored place that many uh, people had in American history up until a few years ago and have now been uh, torn down and are considered not merely, uh, well, objectionable uh, men, all the men, by the way, but also uh, evil men, really bad men, and people we should should, should turn away from. And of course, we've seen in the last year the enormous, uh, well, adulation of this man, George Floyd, who had the, who unfortunately died. Uh, but it's it's hard to believe that any society, any American society or any society would have uh, elevated this character to this pr- eminence in, Amer- in in society as George Floyd would. Anyway, it's happening all the time, and it's happening even more rapidly in America today because America is going through a very, very severe crisis of identity. What does it mean to be American? What does America even mean? Uh, what's the purpose and what's the, what, what what's the very definition of the United States of America? And those kind of questions or questions that fundamental were not even being asked 10 or 20 years ago. People more or less assumed and took for granted the prevailing view that, well, this is all good. America was founded for good reasons and so forth. Now that all is all being questioned by, an, and especially with an administration in the White House, who is pledged to uproot what it calls systemic racism that it says is so badly entrenched in American society from 1619 to the present?
0: What methods can we use to determine whether or not something is true or false with regard to a historical event?
1: Well, you could spend years trying to figure it out yourself. Uh, One thing to do is this. Uh, First of all, you can find more or less a consensus by people about what actually happened. That's not too difficult. What's more important is uh, to try to understand how important this event or that event really is. During the past week, there was a tremendous amount in the newspapers, in the television, uh, in the media about the anniversary of the Tulsa uh, race riots or massacre of 1921. Well, that's not new. We all knew that. I mean, anybody who cared would know about that. It's not a a new thing, Uh, but the emphasis on it has uh, uh, made people uh, give it it an attention we didn't have before. But the point is, it's not so much uh, the events that are in question, it's our interpretation of them. And so in in evaluating that, try to see things from a, a, a detached perspective. Just as when we try to understand human beings on an individual basis, we try to see how they act in relationship to other people in other situations, and then we form a, an impression, an evaluation of their character, what they're like, and so forth. The same thing is with historical events it, or uh, narratives of history. We try to see them in a larger uh, perspective, and th- that's one thing. But the other and most obvious one is that for most people, it's based on trust, because we don't have the time uh, either in medical field or in history, to do a whole lot of research and investigation ourselves, we have to go, we have to trust somebody. And so, to a great degree, we have to think, well, these people or that source is more reliable than, than this one, or their pers- that perspective is one I embrace or understand more. That's an important thing, and that's why uh, the Libertarian Institute, I think, has a good record of presenting history and so forth in a way that's reliable and trustworthy. And um, of course, it has its agenda or it has its perspective, you could say, but so does everyone. And to a great degree, our, pers- our individual perspective on the past is going to be influenced tremendously by those sources that we regard as trustworthy. That's an important thing. And so that's why I recommend look, look at the IHR, of course. Now, the IHR, unlike, oh, I don't know, Fox News maybe, does uh, assume a a higher level of uh, nuance or sophistication or background knowledge than the popular television media does. And so uh, it's, it's really not meant for the mass of ordinary people. We're not trying to compete with Fox News or trying to compete with Twitter or Facebook, although we have a presence on some of the social media. What we're trying to do is influence Younger people, especially, who can and I think must, will be leaders in the future if we're to have any kind of future as a country or as a society.
0: So uh, the following questions are going to be intentionally vague because I want to give you as much wiggle room as you'd like. Uh, What were the primary causes of the First World War?
1: Well, one of the, uh, um, well, we'll probably get into this, but one book I very much recommend, in fact, uh, I have on our website a study guide or a recommended reading list about a whole lot of different subjects, and one of the books I recommend very strongly for people who uh, want a uh, an introductory work on 20th century, the First and Second World Wars, um, I recommend very highly the book Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War by Patrick J. Buchanan. Patrick Buchanan is familiar, I'm sure, to most of your viewers, listeners, uh, through his columns and through other books he's written. But uh, Patrick Buchanan's book is not a book of groundbreaking, pathbreaking history, but Pat Buchanan is a very gifted uh, narrator and synthesizer. He's able to present things in a digestible, understandable way and he has the intelligence and ability to put together bring together a whole lot of material from different sources in a way to make it understandable and uh, digestible and so i recommend that book very much and in that book he deals with the origins of the first world war and the second world war but one of the features of of one of the points he makes very strongly um, is the role that britain especially had in uh, pushing for war and making war inevitable in both cases. And the, if you, if you might say, the bad guy in Pat Buchanan's book is Winston Churchill, who played a role in both the First and Second World Wars. And he has a very, very strong um, criticism of what he calls the Churchill cult, uh, which, um, and especially uh, Churchill is very popular among conservatives, because with the Second World War, conservatives have, of all the leaders, of different countries during the Second World War. They're not very enthusiastic about Franklin Roosevelt for a lot of reasons. He was a Democrat. He was a liberal. They don't like Hitler or Stalin, obviously. So almost by default, the good guy is Winston Churchill. And of course, his rhetoric was inspiring, and he, uh, movies have been made about uh, his speeches, although I, that's a whole other subject. But Pat Buchanan uh, has written a book that tries very hard to uh, 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 dismantled, you might say, this uh, edifice of Winston Churchill, but with regard to the First World War. Um, one of the uh, features of the First World War is how no one at the beginning of the war in any of the countries of Europe wanted anything like the war that finally developed, and this is a very important point about war in general, and it's a point I've made in many, many talks. Uh, wars uh, almost no war develops as anyone at the beginning thought it would develop. That was true of the American Civil War. It was true of the First World War. It was true of the Second World War. Certainly true of the Vietnam War. It's true of the Iraq War. Uh, wars take on a dynamic all their own. And I plead very strongly uh, that leaders always be very, very cautious about Uh, doing anything to ignite a war, because very rarely do they work out well the way people expect. And that's very, very true of the First World War. Uh, When the First World War began in 1914, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm because uh, of patriotic enthusiasm in Britain, in France, in Germany, across Europe, in various countries for it. uh, An enthusiasm that Broke down pretty quickly when it became obvious that this war was going to be a terrible bloodletting mess that dragged on for four years and left left all of Europe, even the victors, uh, distraught, destroyed, and ruined. Um, no more, no country worse off than France, uh, which lost so many men, even though it was so-called on the winning side. And Pat Buchanan emphasizes that. And those people who are familiar with Pat Buchanan's columns knows how much he has warned against the dangers of alliances, military alliances that obligate countries, particularly the United States, to get involved in wars in which they don't really have a vital interest. And this is particularly true of the First World War. What happened is when countries began uh, taking sides, uh, inevitably the alliances that had been made brought countries, everybody into this war, uh, even when the interests were not really very vital. I mean, uh, on on an extended level, uh, say Canada, South Africa, Australia got involved in the First World War, even though the dispute, uh, the, the, the issues of dispute in the First World War had nothing really essential to do with the interests, even the awareness of people in Australia, New Zealand, or other countries. But they were all tied through alliances of one kind or another that brought all these countries into this terrible conflict, at the end of which all of Europe was really ruined. Now... Americans don't really look at war the same way that uh, people in other countries do. And that's because, with the exception of the American Civil War, our wars have always been far away from our shores. Except for the people actually getting shot or killed in or wounded in the battle, our wars don't really affect us the way the others. And this is something I learned at a very young age when I first was living in Europe, that People in Japan or Europe, uh, Poland, Germany, France and England and so forth, look at war in a very different way. Americans are very used to talking very lightly, very flippantly almost about, well, if some country causes problem, we'll just turn their country into a parking lot or we'll just bomb them. Because win or lose, life goes on more or less the same in America no matter what happens. W- wars don't mean that uh, for other countries. The Second World War was an utterly destructive thing for Japan or for China or for Poland or Germany. Uh, it was also very destructive in France and, of course, in Russia. But in America, during the Second World War, uh, the, the economy boomed. There were jobs aplenty. Uh, life was better, except for the people actually, as I said, in the war. Uh, the Second World War was a good time for America. And America came out of the Second World War uh, economically dominant in the world. The rest of the world was in in ruins, was on its back. And so we look at wars very differently. Even the Vietnam War, which I remember when I was young, how divisive and how bad that was, it didn't affect us at all in the way that affected people in Vietnam. Anyway, the point is, though, that The the First World War and, of course, the Second World War were very destructive, but both of those wars were very, in a sense, good, if you can use that word for America, because America came out of it as the top dog in the world economically, financially, uh, even militarily, uh, in the case of the Second World War. And so we don't look at war in the same way, with the same uh, dread that people do around the world who have suffered the consequences of it in a very direct and horrifying way.
0: Uh, Any more causes of the First World War that we could get a general understanding of before we go into the interim and the Second World War? Well,
1: the the big thing is that none of the issues of the First World War were worth the enormous uh, uh, cost of life and destruction that came out of it. Uh, I mean, the, the immediate issue was uh, over Serbia's role with Austria. Uh, Austria, I mean, Austria was unhappy because Serbian nationalists were inciting uh, uh, fellow uh, Serbs and Slobs in South Austria, and in the southern part of the austro hungarian Empire. Uh, then Austria gave an ultimatum to Serbia. Uh, Serbia refused, Austria declares war, Russia mobilizes its forces because it feels uh, obliged to def- defend Serbia in this thing. Uh, Germany then, because the, uh, the uh, Russian mobilization is uh, aimed at Germany, then Germany declares war on Russia. Uh, France declares. War. Anyway, the thing spins completely out of control. And at the end of it all, uh, I think it's fair to say none of it was worth, uh, whatever the issues were, and they were relatively minor ones that could have been dealt with, none of it was worth the enormous expense and destruction of it. And there's two things. First of all, Britain's decisive war, war Brit- role. Britain could have, that Buchanan argues, other historians have argued, could have played a role to have ended the war or brought, down, brought the war probably to an earlier conclusion if it had not itself gotten involved. And the second point is that alliances that obligate countries uh, to go to war are very should be entered into very, very cautiously because they often are tripwires that have consequences far beyond what we ever expect.
0: yeah, I think uh, Buchanan uh, says that the British justification was from an eighteen thirty nine treaty that if Belgian's neutrality was ever violated, Britain would come into war on behalf of uh, Belgium, and because Germans crossed through Belgium to get to France, they said, oh, that declares war, and then they oh. have the fake uh, babies on bayonets that the Bryce Report gave right. us. So uh, yeah, that that's an excellent point. Well, People don't the, think the, that. Alliances the, are often tripwires, is a great way to say it. Not, not only
1: that, uh, oftentimes the pretext for a war is not the real reason why countries go to war. The pretexts are given for uh, public relations benefit. Remember, the Iraq war was sold to the American public on the basis of claims that turned out not to be true. But that's not the real reason why we got into that war. But that's uh, a subject for another uh, podcast, I suppose.
0: Exactly. Exactly. There Scott, is one- Horton,
1: Scott Horton has gone into that, I think, I, I, uh, in, a, in a very uh, detailed way, of course.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I uh, just want to quote Churchill from uh, 1938. This is a brand new copy that I got from IHR of uh, Hitler-Churchill and the Unnecessary War. So this is in 1938. Churchill replied that uh, Londonary, Londonary, oh my gosh, I can't pronounce that, uh, was mistaken in supposing that I have an anti-German obsession Churchill went on to explain British policy for 400 years has been to oppose the strongest power in Europe by weaving together a combination of other countries strong enough to face the bully. Sometimes it is Spain. Sometimes it is the French monarchy. Sometimes the French Empire. Sometimes Germany. I have no doubt about it now. But if... France set up to claim the overlordship of Europe, I shall equally endeavor to oppose them. It is thus through the centuries we've kept our liberties and maintained our life and power. Right. Looking at the First World War, Doesn't uh British supremacy seem like much, and you know, uh, Germany being a threatening rival, isn't that a much better explanation than violating Belgium neutrality?
1: And in fact, uh, a, a very similar quote is also in the first volume of Churchill's own six volume history of the Second World War, he makes the point. See, at the time, he's saying, oh, we've got to stop Hitler because he's really evil, he's really bad, and this is why we got to go. But he himself quotes uh, from an earlier speech in the 30s that we're not opposing Germany because it's particularly bad. Uh, Britain had opposed Philip II of Spain, it had opposed Napoleon and uh, Louis XIV in France. It opposed, Britain had a long policy of what it called balance of power of making alliances with other countries in Europe to offset any country that seemed to be dominant on the continent. The problem is that very often countries that are powerful, like Britain was at the beginning of the 20th century, miscalculate their power. They think they can hold on to it when the world reality has changed. And this is a point Pap Buchanan has made many times about America's place in the world today. Uh, many American leaders seem to talk, they talk as if America, with just the right tweaking or the right policy, can return to the days of the 1960s or 70s, when America was able to basically snap its fingers and the world uh, responded. That world is gone. America emerged from the Second World War as by far the most important economic financial power in the world. At the end of the Second World War, something like 90% of the automobiles in the world were produced by the big three of Detroit, General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford. Today, China, every year, produces more automobiles than the United States and Japan combined. America's, uh, up until the Reagan years, America was the number, and from the end of the Second World War to up to the Reagan years, America was the number one creditor nation in the world. Since then, it's been the number one debtor nation in the world. There's no going back. The world has built up from the destruction after the end of the Second World War. And China is, or very soon will be, uh, equal or greater economically than the United States. And the danger is, uh, like Britain at the beginning of the 20th century, acting as if it can still play the hegemonic, the dominant role that it used to play when the reality had changed. And more specifically with the First World War, the rise of Germany, In the unification of Germany at the end of the 19th century, Germany was so much more efficient or powerful on the continent that the old balance of power policy was never going to really work again. I mean, and it didn't work in the First World War. It certainly didn't work in the Second World War. In the Second World War, Britain came out on the winning side, but it certainly didn't win the war. The dominant powers at the end of the Second World War wasn't Britain, it was the Soviet Union and the United States. And for the first time in European history, outer European states had do- came to dominate Europe, each of them with their own ideologies and so forth. And, uh, and Churchill himself ends his sixth volume, History of the Second World War, uh, the final volume is entitled Triumph and Tragedy, because the tragedy, he says, is at the end of all this terrible suffering, Britain was faced, he says, with uh, threats and dangers as great if not greater than they faced in 1939. And that's a very, very sad commentary on the tremendous suffering and cost and misery that the Second World War brought at the end of which it's still in this very terrible way, threatened this time then at the end of the Second World War by the country that was its ally during the Second World War, namely the Soviet Union.
0: And uh, finally, just uh, to finish off, Uh, the end of uh, the 19-teens, I guess. Uh, What was the Balfour Declaration of 1917?
1: Well, the Balfour Declaration, this is uh, also a, well, some would say an example of what they call English perfidious albion, the the English duplicity. Uh, Britain during the Second and the First World War was promising the Arabs that if they sided with Britain against the Ottoman Empire, which was allied to Germany, the Arabs would have freedom, and Palestine would be an Arab state. They promised at the same time to the Jews that if the Jews supported Britain in the First World War, that they would have a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And, uh, 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 well, they, they made kind of, and then uh, secretly the British and the French each divvied up The whole Arab world among themselves in in another treaty, the Sykes-Picot Treaty. So there were three conflicting promises the British were given about what was going to happen to the Arab countries. And the Balfour Declaration was a pledge, a public pledge by Lord Balfour. The the text was actually uh, in the form of a letter to Lord Rothschild, who played a very large role in British Uh, uh, business and political life in Britain during the war, a pledge that if the Jews of the world or if Jewry supported Britain, uh, then Britain would, uh, in return, pledge to support what they called a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And it's vaguely worded. Does that mean that Palestine will be a Jewish state or does it mean Jews will be able to settle there? That's typical of how these kind of diplomatic uh, statements are worded. But what it did, it was important, not so much for Jews in, uh, in Britain, but for Jews in the United States, because at the beginning of this First World War, most Jews around the world supported the central powers. They supported Germany and its allies, not the, ally, not, the uh, not Britain and France, because Britain and France allied with Tsarist Russia. And for most Jews at the beginning of the First World War, the big bad guy in the world was the Tsarist, Tsarist Russia. Whose, uh, the policies of uh, Russia, the Russian Empire, were overtly, were openly uh, a- a hostile to Jews, and so and what, what Jews had did very well actually at that time in Germany. And so the the majority of the public opinion, at the beginning of the First World War in America, by American Jewish organizations, was actually, uh, uh, if anything, sympathetic to Russia, but very, very hostile to. Uh, to, uh, uh, sympathetic to Germany, but hostile to Russia. So the Balfour Declaration was an attempt to win over especially support from American Jews and to get America to support. That was issued in 1916. And all that changed in 1917 when the Tsar was overthrown. So that became a thing. But anyway, it it, it laid the seeds, though, for uh, the problems we've seen uh, with of course, the establishment of the State of Israel and all of that ever since, but Britain played this duplicitous and two-faced role in making one promise to the Arabs, another promise uh, to uh, the Jewish organizations, Zionist groups, and then a third promise, a secret treaty with the French to divvy the whole thing up and control it among themselves.
0: What are some important, uh, important things to know about the Treaty of Versailles?
1: Well... Of course, Pap Buchanan, again, this is it's a, a much, much, much has been written and said about the Treaty of Versailles, but that's the treaty that was uh, ho- cobbled together at the end of the uh, first World War against and and, and Germany was forced to uh, sign it. It was a humiliating treaty for Germany, one that no uh, leader of any stature in Germany could and could conscience accept. I mean, if for no other reason, just on moral grounds, because the Treaty of Versailles, insisted that germany alone has to bear the responsibility for the destruction of the first world war that's a view that not only historians i don't think uh, i mean not historians do not agree with certainly germans did not agree with and so the treaty was considered a humiliation but more than that it was a it, it was a violation of promises grave pledges serious pledges made by United States, and endorsed by Britain and France, when Germany laid down its arms in November of 1918 and agreed to an armistice, agreed to the end of the war. At the end of the war, German troops were still in France and Belgium. Germany had not been overrun or defeated, and Germany laid down its arms on the basis of these very solemn pledges made by Wilson and which Wilson got the British and France to support, but then he broke these pledges. He ins- uh, basically, the principle of self-determination was uh, given to other people, but not to Germans. Uh, the Allies claimed that, well, if Germany just gets rid of the Kaiser uh, uh, and has a democratic government, a republican government, uh, then all everything will be forgiven. Uh, uh, we'll just go back to the good old days. Well, that's not what happened. And Germany was treated very shamefully. And understandably, this was a a source of tremendous resentment in Germany, and one of the reasons why the government, the democratic government that was set up in Germany after the First World War, was so unpopular with so many people. It was uh, 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 weighted down with this uh, with reparations that went on. I mean, impossible to pay, couldn't even calculate them. It also meant the breaking up of. Eastern Europe and the Ottoman uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire and was economically very destructive for much of Europe because the trading patterns, all of the economic life of Eastern Europe had been in place for centuries and all that was disrupted very uh, rashly, brutally, you might say, by the Treaty of Versailles. Anyway, the Treaty of Versailles, I mean, for example, one of the pledges made by Wilson is that the uh, uh, claims of, of colonies that all the countries had would be uh, looked at judiciously and equally, including the German claims. That wasn't happened at all. What happened was all of Germany's colonies were just confiscated and turned over to the British and the French. Um, anyway, all this was really not only harmful for Germany, but humiliating as well. Um, and it represents uh, a really a low point in American diplomacy, because Woodrow Wilson had gone into the war with all these high-flown, rhetoric about how America was going to fight for a new world in which there would never again be war. It would be a war uh, permanently for democracy in the world. Well, it didn't happen that way at all. I mean, not only German Americans were unhappy, the Irish Americans were very unhappy because Wilson was pledging self-determination for everybody, but not for Ireland, for example. The Irish were very unhappy about that. And there were many other examples of this too. The Japanese were very unhappy. They were ally, I mean, excuse me, Chinese were very unhappy because the former German, you might say colony on the Shantung Peninsula was turned over to Japan. And uh, there was no self-determination there for the Chinese living there. Anyway, all of this was a reason why millions of Americans were so disgusted by the Treaty of Versailles, by Wilson's uh, failure to live up to the pledges he had made to justify America's role in the First World War, that then in the early 1930s, the American Congress, with wide support from the American public, passed a series of neutrality laws to try to avoid America's involvement in any new conflict as America had been involved in the First World War.
0: What were the primary causes of the Second World War?
1: <laughs> well, um, it's, it, what you often hear uh, from people is, the Second World War began when Germany attacked Poland on September 1st, 1939. Uh, A.J.P. Taylor is, uh, was an outstanding historian of the 20th century. And he says, well... Uh, you know, that's a date you can choose. But for Chinese, uh, the war began earlier than that, uh, when the Japanese invaded China. Uh, For Russians, the war didn't really begin until the 22nd of June, 1941. Uh, Actually, for even uh, Britain and France, it didn't begin until two days later when Britain and France declared war on Germany because Germany had attacked Poland. I mean, you can say the First World War, uh, the Second World War, excuse me, began when Germany attacked Poland, but that's really not true. Uh, it, it's 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 more accurate to say that a localized conflict between Germany and Poland uh, became a continental-wide war when Britain and France declared war against Germany on the third of September, uh, much to the shock and chagrin of German leaders who did not think or expect or want uh, a larger war nobody in uh, Germany really wanted a larger war. They thought, uh, well, there's a lot more to be said about that. So even dating the beginning of the Second World War is a is a dubious thing, depending on what country you're talking about. For the polls, it began on the 1st of September. Uh, but the Second World War, that is a worldwide war, really wasn't a total worldwide war until finally the United States became overtly involved with the bombing of Pearl Harbor and then the war between Japan, when Japan and the United States became involved, then it became truly a, a global war. But uh, from 19, I mean, essentially, the Soviet Union was out of it. And for French, for, for the French, well, the French declared war. Then in May 1940, uh, Germany attacked France after pleading, please, let's end the war. Uh, France was was out of the war after six weeks of fighting. And then they weren't involved in the war again until 1944, exactly when, when Americans then and British and so forth landed in Normandy. So it depends on your perspective, you might say, when the Second World War began. In fact, you know, in the Russia today, they celebrate every year what they call Victory Day on the 9th of May. Because for Russia, the war ended on the 9th of May. For America, it ended on the, the war in Europe ended on the 8th of May. But the war in the Pacific didn't end until August. But the Soviets don't really care about the Second World War. They care about what they call the Great Patriotic War, the war that involved them. And that's understandable because each country looks at these uh, conflicts in a very uh, different way depending on their own perspective.
0: So I want to go to the 3rd of September, 1939. Here is Neville Chamberlain, who at at the time was the prime minister. He said this morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that we were prepared at once to withdraw, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. I don't know what age I was at but uh I remember being pretty embarrassingly old when I found out that it was the UK that declared war on Germany and not the other <laughs> way around. I had always assumed that it was, you know, Hitler invading all these countries and right. then the UK was please, please, can we can we appease you? What can we do? Next thing you know, he's invaded the UK and then their arm is twisted into going to war. I had no clue it was a uh you know, dispute. Uh, I'm sorry uh, to derail this, but uh, do you have any information on what the Danzig dispute was with Poland oh. and Germany?
1: Germany had, uh, up until September 1939, been able to uh, overturn what they consider the most humiliating features of the Versailles Treaty peacefully. Uh, with Austria, Austria was taken uh, was uh, made an independent country. Uh, despite the wishes of the people of Austria, uh, the Germans of what they call the Sudetenland and what is now Czechia or Czech Republic, they were put in a, a new country contrary to what they wanted. Uh, there was other things that happened, uh, other, other uh, similar things. And German, Hitler was able, without war, to sort of deal with all of these uh, things. And he thought at the beginning of 1939 that asking Poland to agree that Danzig, which was a city on the Baltic uh, that had been German city for centuries, be returned to Germany. Uh, it should be, people should understand, the German city of Danzig at the, uh, 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 on the Baltic was a link to the Baltic Sea for Poland, but the population of Danzig was German and the area right around it was mostly German. And that area was taken away uh, given to either Poland or made a so-called city-state under the League of Nations against the wishes of the people there to give Poland an outlet to the sea. And Hitler tried to uh, say to the Poles, okay, let's work out something here so at least the people have the justice and the, the what they want. Um, now, people will say, well, Hitler didn't really mean what he said. He was lying. Maybe, maybe not. But the only way to test that isn't just to attack, it's to take him at his word, okay, let's try to work it. But anyway, Poland was fortified by the pledge given in March, 1939 by Britain, that Britain would back Poland if there was any conflict with Germany. And both uh, Patrick Buchanan and many other historians have made the point that this was a fatal blunder because Britain committed itself to support Poland, no matter how unreasonable Poland was. This is a dangerous thing. And Pat Buchanan has made the point many times that similar American pledges to a range of countries in Eastern Europe uh, is is similarly dangerous. And and this is, uh, anyway, this, the, Pat Buchanan spends much of his book emphasizing the very dangerous Uh, pledge, open-ended, blank-check pledge, you could say, to Poland. And the great tragedy of all of this is that Britain went to war against Germany in 1939 because Poland's sovereignty and independence was threatened by Germany. At the end of six years or five and a half years of terrible conflict, Poland was under Soviet, complete Soviet domination. In other words, the, the reason why Poland, the reason Poland gave for going to war um, was uh, to uh, uh, make to try to bring about a goal that was never achieved even after terrible war was over. And particularly for Poles, this is a grave, grave tragedy. That, uh, and also, of course, when the war began, the British and French both pledged that they would go in with uh, 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 swords and uh, sabers and flags and so forth to go to war against Germany, and they didn't do that. They sort of sat on their heels and Poland was subdued in six weeks or so, and uh, and then attacked again the east by the Soviets. Uh, of course, the British, if, if they really cared about Polish sovereignty, they should have declared war on the Soviet Union too. But they didn't do that. I mean, and the, the Soviets thing,
0: invaded. I think it was like two week, two or uh, two and a half weeks later. Right. It, right. It's like right. it was. I mean, almost like they had. Uh, what well, was there an actual agreement? Is that what the Molotov
1: rubentrop well, pact was the, the molotov rubentrop agreement which was made in august sh- shortly before the german attack only divided poland and that area into spheres of influence it didn't mean necessarily that the polish state would be eliminated but because the germans uh, hit, 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 even in a speech and given in october hitler hitler didn't rule out that there would be a polish state but the polish government fled there was nobody I mean there was there, there was no uh, really people even to operate the Polish went as government exile, refused to negotiate and the Soviets invaded from the east and just simply incorporated uh, the territories that they took from Poland, which is actually a larger territory than the Germans took and incorporated it into directly into the Soviet Union um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's on the basis of this treaty, but it didn't the, the treaty uh, or it's a secret clause of the nineteen thirty uh, August nineteen thirty nine Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement did not necessarily preclude that there wouldn't be a uh, didn't mean that there wouldn't be a Polish state, but anyway, that's the way it worked out, and uh, and that's what happened. Yeah.
0: What are some important uh, things to know about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor?
1: Well. um... There's a a museum in Japan dedicated to uh, Japan's role in the Second World War, and it, of course, presents all of this from a Japanese point of view. But the big point of uh, Japan uh, attacked at Pearl Harbor on the, uh, as it turned out, very foolish calculation that the United States would uh, not retaliate or be bent on destroying Japan in retaliation for that. But the pr- main problem, the reason why Japan took that rash a step to attack the, uh, the United States of America was because Japan was facing economic ruin. It's very important to remember that at that time the major source of Japanese petroleum and was from the United States. The United States was a major oil-producing country. And other sources of petroleum in the world either they just simply were not accessible to Japan. If Japan had accepted, uh, or, or try well, Japan faced ruin one way or the other. As one Japanese historian said, "Not attacking Pearl Harbor would have meant accepting the consequences of a defeat in war without even fighting war." And that's why Japan attacked because they thought, well, okay. We're going to attack the United States. They thought the blow would be so stunning, America would just sort of allow Japan to take over areas of Southeast Asia and uh, thereby build, uh, maintain itself as a modern industrial state. But see, um, uh, the Japanese were not uh, madmen. Although obviously, in in retrospect, it looks it was very foolish for them to have done that because they didn't have a proper understanding of the mood and the likelihood of what the United States, how the United States would respond to that. But be that as it may, that's, uh, the United States had uh, been carrying out a policy very much directed against Japan for a long time up until Pearl Harbor. The best single book on that subject is one that we sell, in fact, we publish, uh, called Pearl Harbor by uh, George Morgenstern, who was for years a writer for the Chicago Tribune. And it's probably the still, uh, despite the passage of time, the best single-volume history or examination of how uh, the uh, how it came to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and then the war between the United States and Japan.
0: Is the Morgan Stern book where he quotes Henry Stimson's diary? Is that?
1: I I I don't remember. It's been so widely quoted, I don't remember who who quotes it where, but yeah, Henry Stimson even wrote in his diary, well, the uh, trick is here, how do we get the Japanese to fire the first shot so we don't look like we're starting the war? But uh, Stimson also wrote, uh, too, something like, uh, we've already, uh, and this was true not only with regard to Japan, but even more true with regard to Germany, up until that time, the United States' actions had been very overtly belligerent against Germany and Italy and Japan and they were acts of war they were acts that if uh, I mean they had fired on German ships they had seized German property uh, they had given military aid to both the Soviet Union United States given military aid to both the Soviet Union and Britain all that are just blatantly unneutral acts carried out by the United States and Stimson also wrote that he, uh, Germany already has every excuse in the world to declare war on the United States but Uh, Hitler, of course, didn't want to (laughs) provoke a war with the United States at that point because his hands were, uh, he had plenty to do trying to subdue uh, the Soviet Union because at the beginning, in December 1941, German troops were battling furiously just outside of uh, Moscow against the Red Army. And that was the major, of course, uh, focus of the German war effort at that point.
0: There is an article published by the New York Times on January 2nd, 1972, titled War Entry Plans Laid to Roosevelt. It said, Churchill's account of Roosevelt's attitude toward the war was contained in the minutes of that cabinet meeting. This is a meeting in August of 1940 in Canada. The minutes quoting Churchill indirectly said he, Roosevelt, obviously was determined that they should come in if he were to put the issue of peace and war to Congress, they would debate it for months, the cabinet minutes added. The president had said he would wage war but not declare it and that he would become more and more provocative if the Germans did not like it, they could attack American forces. The president's orders to these U.S. Navy escorts were to attack any German U-boat which showed itself even if it were two or three hundred miles away from the convoy, everything was to be done to force an incident that is churchill's own words published in the new york times and uh, and i was always taught that you know we're this stupid isolationist nation who just thought we could who who was just focused on the new deal and then out of nowhere our uh, our hand is uh, you know our arm is twisted into another war right. that we so heavily resisted and it's not the case at all
1: right no this is a very important point i've written extensively on this subject there's a great deal on her website about the deceit the lies of the roosevelt administration to try to get the american public to go along with his efforts to get the united states in war and i've written extensively not merely on what you're referring to this is from august 1940 even before the outbreak of war in september 1939 roosevelt was giving pledges to the poles to the british and the french to that if they declare war on germany uh, the United States would um, support them as best they could, or certainly at the end, and so forth. This is really very, very important, uh, and it, and it runs counter to this idea of uh, the simple, naive, big America just living in luxury and watching football and ba- baseball and football games, and then that nasty Hitler comes over and causes a lot of trouble, and so Roosevelt had to had to act. No, Roosevelt was was interested already. In 1938 and 39, uh, I, it's not a secret, that it's, it's well documented that already in 1938, this is before even the Polish Danzig crisis, he called the British ambassador into the White House in a secret conference. We know about this because the ambassador himself wrote, the, uh, wrote a memorandum about this meeting. And Roosevelt told him, he says, no word of this should get out. If ever any word of this gets out, I'm, I'm screwed, he says. And the whole point was to tell the British ambassador, give him this crazy advice about how to provoke war with Germany without declaring war so that there would be war and America would be able to jump in and uh, look like it's on the good side uh, against Germany backing, uh, backing Britain. This is, this is fantastic that there was this level of duplicity. And, of course, Roosevelt matched this in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor with a whole lot of just utterly absurd claims about Germany. One of the high points of that came in October 1941 when he gave an address that was broadcast to the entire country on radio claiming that he had secret documents to show that the Germans were planning to invade South America and divide up all of South America into German uh, subordinate states. And another document, he said, that showed the Germans were planning to take over the world and abolish all the world's religions and replace it with a new religion of Mein Kampf and the sword, some crazy thing like that. All of that is absurd, but there's no historian disputes the, uh, authentic, the truth of this. In fact, uh, these claims were actually uh, uh, products of British intelligence that were feeding uh, Uh, fake documents and fake things like that to Franklin Roosevelt to encourage him, because the British had uh, their backs were the wall. They were desperate to get the United States into the war rather than because they would have otherwise to make uh, peace with Germany. Anyway, uh, Roosevelt's role in this has not been at all properly, I think, highlighted and examined by historians about uh, how he tried to get the United States and encouraged war in Europe before it even broke out in 1939.
0: I know, talk about statues that should be coming down.
1: So well,
0: it- it's an irony <laughs> that, that Woodrow
1: Wilson, I mean, maybe he deserves a statue, doesn't come them down for the reasons that are stated, but it's not coming down for the reasons why Americans were really mad at him back in the 1920s. Exactly. Uh, there was a lot of unhappiness with, with Woodrow Wilson But his statues are coming down. And now the same thing's happening to Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons to be unhappy with Winston Churchill, but he's now considered bad, not for his duplicity or for anything he did about war. As Pat Buchanan points out, uh, Churchill thrived on war. Without war, his political career was finished uh in 1939 he was on the outs uh in 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 public opinion and in political life in britain his only hope of coming back into a political life in britain was with war and he liked war i mean he, he th- this is a point that Pat Buchanan i mean Buchanan makes over and over in his book but the point is that uh today he's not criticized for that he's criticized for remarks that he made that by today's standards are hopelessly racist. He was an imperialist. He was a big supporter of the British Empire. He was in favor of uh, suppression, British suppression of India. I mean, it's important to remember at the beginning of the Second World War, by far the largest undemocratic and oppressive regime in the world was the British Empire. Hundreds yeah, of, Churchill hundreds of was people never
0: elected. That's across right. Asia
1: and Africa were under British hegemony in spite of uh, contrary to their wishes, and most notably in uh, in Ireland, I mean in in India, excuse me, in what is now Pakistan, India, uh, Bangladesh. But Rose, uh, Churchill was a uh, a man who sort of thrived on those things. And contrary to the image that was tried, uh, that uh, some people have tried to give, he was a man who had very little sympathy or understanding of ordinary British working people. Uh, he had no contact with the ordinary lives of people. Winston Churchill never had to buy groceries in his life. He never went on a bus or a, a, a subway. He, he always lived with servants. He lived well. Uh, he had to be bailed out a number of times because he went bankrupt. Uh, I mean, he, he was a person who lived a life very much removed from the concerns and cares of the vast majority of 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 people in his country but he's now criticized especially for the very derogatory things he said about blacks and arabs and indians and all sorts of other people and that is already of course in our age almost everybody is measured by whatever they used to think about uh, about race and so that becomes the litmus test in 2021 the united states of america today
0: I know, and like, well, that you know is terrible. It's like saying we hate Ted Bundy because there's evidence that he was a bad tipper. It's like, okay, (laughs) yes, that is bad. We shouldn't be, but there's so much here that you're you're blatantly ignoring. Um, so tell me quickly about, I still don't, I still haven't grasped the story that Buchanan goes over as to how Britain went from, uh, Chamberlain to Churchill. I know that there wasn't an an election where, you know, Churchill was voted in. So the democracy myth goes out the door there, but how did Churchill, uh, become prime minister in, uh, the late thirties?
1: Churchill, uh, you know, it's it's interesting when the first time an election was held after Churchill had become prime minister, out. he was thrown out of office. This is the end of the Second World War. Uh, the, the conservative party was the dominant party. And so whoever headed the conservative party was going to be the prime minister. But Churchill himself wasn't up for election. Uh, he became prime minister in 1940. And this is a very interesting story. Churchill had already he was actually being funded secretly in the 1930s uh, by people who wanted war against Germany. He gave speeches, very uh, fiery speeches against Germany, against Hitler. This is bad. And uh, he was known for being very, very hostile to third right Germany, to Hitler. And um, he did have a certain following. And because of that, when war broke out in 1939, Chamberlain Uh, established a cabinet of national uh, unity that included members of the Labour Party. And Churchill was given the job of head of the Navy, what they called First Lord of the Admiralty. That's the position he had in the First World War. Um, But uh, one of the plans that he cooked up uh, as First Lord of the Admiralty was his ill-fated plan to invade Norway in 1940. It was Churchill that developed this a uh, plan to, first of all, mine the waters of Norway and then to invade Norway because Germany was importing uh, high-grade iron ore from Sweden through Norway and Norway was neutral, uh, and so Germany. Uh, well, first of all, they 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 knew about these plans and the Germans only. Well, the British were the first to break uh, and violate. Uh, Danish, uh, Dutch, uh, Norwegian neutrality, but then the Germans beat the British only by a very matter of days in invading uh, Norway. And the Norwegian campaign was a complete fiasco for the British. And it was especially shocking because the British had a far, far greater navy than the Germans, and yet they were driven from Norway by the Germans in rather uh, stunning uh, military victory. But the the blame for the defeat in Norway wasn't put at the hands uh, at the feet of Churchill, who was responsible for the plan. The person who took the blame was Chamberlain, and ironically, Churchill became prime minister in the aftermath of the uh, failed uh, Norwegian campaign. Even though he was the person who was responsible for this campaign, but he became uh, prime minister just as. Uh, The uh, German then attacked in the West against France and uh, uh, inherited uh, that, and of course that was a fiasco as well. But anyway, that's one of the ironies of the war is that Churchill's own uh, responsibility for the uh, fiasco of the Norway campaign uh, was uh, attributed to Chamberlain rather than Churchill, and it gave actually Churchill his role as uh, Prime Minister.
0: So, looking at the end of the Second World War with regard to American-Japanese relationships, uh, it appears, you know, uh, we've already gone over this, that, you know, uh, provoked uh, out of nowhere, Japan attacks America. Okay, we've dealt with that. Now that there is a conflict, Japan refusing to uh, sign any treaty or uh, concede uh, in this conflict, uh, the US uh, sends two nukes to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Were the nuking, the nuclear bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki necessary for the war to end?
1: Well, I've written a, a, a lengthy essay on that entitled, Was Hiroshima Necessary? And one of the uh, very, how should I put it, morally dubious features of the Second World War was the American insistence on what was called unconditional surrender. The Japanese and the Germans were given no opportunity other than just abjectly surrendering without any condition whatsoever. In other words, if the real goal was to end the war, the war would have ended much sooner than it did. But America insisted uh, on just uh, uh, total uh, uh, supplication, total uh, uh, subordination to the United States nothing less than what they called unconditional surrender. And it meant the basically the end of uh, uh, the independence of these countries. Now, the Japanese had been making for months efforts to try to end the war with the United States on the one condition that the uh, uh, emperor would not be uh, mistreated. It, it, he was considered a quasi sacred symbol of Japan. And as long as he could still retain at least some nominal role the Japanese were willing to surrender because they knew the war was over. Remember, even before the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, American air power was absolutely devastating. More people were killed in American incendiary fire bombings of Tokyo before Hiroshima and Nagasaki than were killed at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. American air power was just devastating. Remember, in the last months of the war, the war was over in Europe and America could turn the full brunt of its enormous military power against Japan, that even at the beginning of the war had an economy only about one tenth of that of the United States. Anyway, the Japanese repeatedly made efforts to end the war and America dropped the bomb on Japan. But what was decisive was not the atomic bomb, despite what people say, because actually fewer people died at Hiroshima or Nagasaki than were already killed in America's firebombing of Tokyo and other Japanese cities. What was decisive was the Soviet declaration of war a day after the Hiroshima bombing against the Soviet Union. That's when Japan decided, and that was a decisive factor in saying, we're surrendering, we're going to give up, because they would rather surrender to the Americans than to uh, the Soviets. And that's what happened. And they conditioned, it, they tried to put it in a way, and America ended up accepting the condition that Japanese leaders did make, that the emperor would not be humiliated and treated as a war criminal. and That's what happened, because it was useful to use him as a prop you might say for america's occupation of japan and unlike what happened in germany the occupation of japan was a completely american affair it was not divided into zones the way germany had been or austria had been uh, after the end of the war in europe japan was totally under american control and uh, i mean if america had um uh, agreed to the Japanese terms earlier, it would have not only save many American and Japanese lives, there would have been no divided Korea, for example. Uh, there, It's possible there wouldn't have been a communist China, because with the uh, entrance of the Soviet Union into the war, the Red Army very quickly took over Manchuria and northern China, which was a big aid to the uh, Chinese communists. But that's a, those are all kind of speculative side notes to the thing. Um, a bigger point is really how uh, very, very draconian it is to demand unconditional surrender, because it shows that whoever demands that is not really interested just in peace. It's interested in well, now the word popular word now is regime change. It wants to obliterate the old regime and impose a, a kind of new order on the defeated country.
0: So you have documented evidence that the Japanese regime was willing to surrender before oh, yeah. the bombings no, of Hiroshima.
1: There's there's, there's, there's no uh, dispute among that among historians. And again, the essay I have, Was Hiroshima Necessary?, it's on our website. I think it's even on the front page of the website somewhere. It uh, goes into great detail about all of the efforts the Japanese made through uh, mo- through embassies in neutral countries to appeal to america to bring i mean already i think it was in may or so the japanese had already changed the government to put in a new government that was the whole point of which was to try to bring out bring about an end to the war
0: all right so let's move on to 1948 here is the original story that i got uh, regarding the fa- the the foundation of israel that there, after the war, a number of people uh, with a Jewish background uh, had suffered tremendous loss because of the Holocaust. In order to uh, secure their ability to exist and their ability to flourish, they were given sort of this favoritism of having a unique state for themselves. The UN voted on this, it was all done legitimately, and today, because the Ver- the Arabs are very upset, they still have 22 states they can belong to, but the small patch of land that is that is Israel they don't like. And ever since then, they've been ruthlessly attacking uh, the Jews because partially of anti-Semitism, and uh, uh, another because they're just uh, upset that uh, they lost that land which was justly acquired. What is wrong with that narrative?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of things. That's the. I mean, I grew when I grew up, uh, like most Americans. I was very pro-Israel because that was the not only the prevailing. It was this the dominant narrative that we heard. Um, I remember following very closely when I was young, the 1967 six day war and I traced it all each day. I followed it very closely on maps of the area and uh, I was very, very fascinated by this and I went to. I mean, there's a lot of other things that got me interested in all of that, but um, Americans of that era were very, very heavily influenced. I think by the film's Exodus. It was an auto preminger big, spectacular uh, movie with major actors. Uh, Robert um, uh, 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 um, uh, Newman was um, uh, Robert. Uh, what's, what, um, Paul Newman. Paul Newman was the was one of the main actors in it. Um, Eva Marie Saint. Uh, anyway, it was a very high uh, level. Uh, star-studded cast and very stirring music, and it was uh, a movie that presented the Arabs only as very uh, shady, dark, sinister forces. Uh, no effort was even made to present anything about them. In fact, the really bad and cynical people were the British in, in the movie. Uh, and so the American narrative was very, very pro-Israel, even at that time. But when, in 1948, um, it's uh, Truman faced the question of whether even to recognize this new Jewish state. Um, And it's very interesting to me and worth important to emphasize that every American who knew anything about the Middle East and was concerned about the best interests of America pleaded with President Truman not even to recognize such a state. They all argued that recognizing a state of Israel is not only a violation of America's own pledges about democracy and uh, uh, peace uh, and uh, uh, national determination, uh, it's also dangerous for America's interests over the long run. Uh, just a few months before the American recognition of Israel, a high level official in the State Department, lawyer Henderson wrote a lengthy memo And he said, if you go ahead and do this, if America recognizes Israel, we will be committed to the end of time to go to war on Israel's behalf. And he predicted this. The Secretary of State of the United States at that time was George Marshall, who was probably the most respected high-level American official during the Second World War and in 1948. He was so furious at the prospect that Truman might recognize the state of Israel, that he said, Mr. President, if you do this, uh, I do not see how I can even support you in the next election. The uh, policy planning staff of the State Department uh, 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 told Truman not to recognize Israel. Marshall told Truman not to recognize Israel. And the Secretary of Defense, which had been established under James Forrestal, also said you are putting domestic political concerns ahead of what's best for the United States. They all urged him not even to recognize. Now, this wasn't a question of military support. This was even recognizing this state, because, uh, and also, yes, it's true, the General Assembly voted uh, to divide the country into Jewish and uh, Arab states, but it had no authority to do that. this was not uh, carried out by some mandate of the people, who lived there at the time. The Jews made up a distinct minority of the population of Palestine at that time. And even that vote was only engineered by massive bribery and threats against various countries uh, at the time in the United Nations. But even more than that, it was only done by the United Nations General Assembly. The United States has violated itself numerous General Assembly resolutions, even even security council resolutions. And so that those people who cite the General Assembly resolution as some sort of mandate are the same people who ignore the General Assembly resolutions on issues that they don't agree with. But that's another matter. I call the U.S. recognition of Israel by Truman the original sin of American Middle East policy. And Truman himself said at the time, he said, gentlemen, I have lots of Jewish voters to answer to and I don't have any Arabs and that's why I'm gonna recognize Israel. And another point he said, Jesus Christ couldn't keep him happy while he was on earth and I don't see how I can do it. He said he, in his memoirs, he said he never got so much pressure as he did on any issue as he did over the recognition of the state of Israel. Again, this was important and also it was a major break because as General uh, Secretary of State Marshall said at the time, Truman put domestic political considerations ahead of what was good for the world and what was good for the United States. And as as Lloyd Henderson, who is a high level U.S. Ambassador and State Department official predicted, America has been committed to all of Israel's actions ever since with, I think, dire consequences for the world. Now, I don't have any particular beef with Israel, but it is dangerous when any country makes foreign policy based upon uh, domestic political concerns and not what's good for the country as a whole and for the world as a whole. And the United States did that in 1948 by recognizing, when it recognized the state of Israel.
0: And Lindsey Graham brags about it uh, uh, on a daily basis. Um, Is it true that uh, there were uh, Zionist gangs referred to as Ergon, Stern, and Haganah, who before 1948 were intentionally bombing civilians in order to build uh, Zionist settlements?
1: Well, one of the catchphrases that you'll hear a lot in the media is how terrible terrorism is. Yeah, terrorism's not good. Nobody likes terrorism. But every political movement in the modern era, before it actually takes power, engages in terrorism. Yeah. Before Ireland was a republic, The Irish nationalists were terrorists and they were denounced as terrorists uh, because terrorists don't have bombers, they don't have artillery, they don't have the weapons that a state does. Denouncing terrorism is only a way of denouncing any political uh, or uh, political movement that doesn't have a state because a state apparatus is able to have armies, bombers, missiles, and so forth. Uh, and so denouncing, sure, terrorism is a terrible thing, just like war is a terrible thing. But terrorism is considered okay if the if the terrorists eventually win. And that's what happened in Palestine. The first people to introduce quote-unquote terrorism into Palestine were the Zionists. And the groups were Irgun, uh, the Stern Gang, it was called the Fighters for the Freedom of Israel, and the Haganah. Now the Haganah was more or less the official Jewish agency, more or less official, a military arm of the government in shadow government of the Zionists. The Stern Gang and the uh, Irgun were much smaller, but they were terrorist organizations. And they regarded uh, uh, not only the Arabs, but also the British as very big bad guys that had to be uh, eliminated. And in fact, the British just finally just washed their hands of the whole thing in 1948 and walked out. And that's when independence was declared. But Uh, One of the leaders of the uh, Haganah, of the uh, uh, Irgun, was Menachem Begin. He was a terrorist. He was involved in the bombing of the King David Hotel, uh, which resulted in the deaths of many innocent people. It was the headquarters of the British uh, occupation forces or mandate forces there. But he later became the prime minister of Israel and was treated uh, with respect. uh, That's what happens when people win. Uh, George Washington was considered a terrorist by... Uh, the British and the American Revolutionary War. And I'm sure if uh, the American Revolution had taken place in the 20th century, they would have used all the familiar uh, tools that terrorists use nowadays, and um, improvised uh, explosive devices and uh, uh, RPGs and all that. But at that time, they didn't have the devices with the same sophistication as we had today. But Yeah, I mean, the the, the Zionists use terrorism, the Arabs use terrorism, because the Palestinians, that's all they have. They don't have a state. They don't have an army of their own, and that's what they do. But it's important to realize, yeah, that if terrorism is so terrible, uh, well, then we should demand that Israel repudiate its past and its leaders for having done so. Now, I'm not, again, trying to point fingers just in one direction. This is history. This is what happens. And of course, Israel is now established as a state and millions of Jews live there. And I'm not in favor of throwing people into the sea or anything like that. But it's important that American policy, not that it takes sides in the side of Israel or of the Palestinians or one side or the other. The important thing is to try to uh, do things that are judicious, that are fair and based on the best interests of the world and of America, not of not based on some uh, blinkered, closed-minded support for one side in uh, uh, ignoring uh, all the other considerations.
0: Yeah, that's really important. I remember bin Laden writing about that. I think it was in 1998 where he had said that basically their plan is to blockade Iraq, and beat the heck out of Iraq until Saddam goes down because it's the biggest rival to uh, Israeli power in the region uh, in the 90s. So yeah, th- these uh, th- these really do turn out to large scale conflicts. Uh, it's not just politics. If there's uh, any
1: one theme that I try to emphasize, it's to be very, very careful about war. War has its own dynamic. Uh, countries should be very reluctant to that. Americans have paid a high price. They're not aware of it in the same sense that other countries have been about war because the wars, except for 9-11, I guess, don't affect us directly. But they have terrible consequences for our country in the world and for, of course, the rest of the world. Um, But I, I think that whatever you can say about the Japanese at Pearl Harbor, other wars, certainly America's... Uh, launching of the war against Iraq in 2003 is just inexcusable. It was launched on the basis of lies and deceit. It caused enormous destruction. And everyone who knew anything about the Middle East urged the United States not to go ahead and do this. Almost, I mean, there was wide, widespread opposition to doing that. And George Bush went ahead with it anyway. And what's incredible to me, what is really shameful, is the way in which people who justified and supported that war are still treated with respect and honor by our media. And Bill the Crystal. politicians are still, uh, who were behind that, are still given uh, honor or respect in a way that they should be just uh, shunned, I think, and disgraced. But that's the way he's, it looks in America.
0: He's in the White House right now. Uh, do you have right, a- right. Uh,
1: including, including
0: Mr. Biden, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I I could talk to you forever. Do you have another 30 minutes, Mr. Weber? Uh,
1: okay. Yeah, I guess so. Uh-huh.
0: Thank you so much. What was the USS Liberty event in 1967 and the Six-Day War?
1: <laughs> this is becoming a little bit like a smorgasbord, a uh, buffet of historical topics. I'm trying well, to go in order. <laughs> no, it's especially appropriate you should mention that, because today is the anniversary of the attack on the USS Liberty in 1967, Uh, That needs to be better known, really. And there are several items on our website today about the USS Liberty incident. It's in 1967 during the Six-Day War, which I, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, remember vividly from my youth, uh, that Israeli warplanes and torpedo boats attacked a U.S. uh, intelligence ship in the uh, international waters in the Mediterranean, the USS Liberty, uh, Interestingly enough, a very appropriately named uh, ship, I think, for uh, reasons. But anyway, the United States attacked this ship and tried to sink it. Um, It's it's a very shameful uh, event in history. We sell a book on this subject called Blood in the Water by a a woman writer named Joan Mellon, uh, which is just hair-raising in what it says about the efforts of the Johnson administration to cover up its own... uh, Um, sanctioning of this Israeli attack on an American ship. If any other country had did it, we would have declared war. Uh, But the Israelis claimed that it was a case of mistaken identity. Uh, None of the members of the USS Liberty believe that. Many other historians think that's just a blatant lie. And they cite evidence to show that uh, Lyndon Johnson deliberately called back American naval support for the U.S.'s liberty against the Israeli attackers because he didn't want to embarrass uh, America's ally, the Israelis. That's a very astonishing thing. It means that Lyndon Johnson put the lives of, of, uh, and the interests of Israel ahead of the lives and interests of Americans, even American naval personnel, uh, when this con when, uh, on the, in this case, that's a very very, well, some people say treacherous, treasonous, despicable uh, thing to have done, but uh, in any case, it showed the way the entire USS Liberty incident has been um, suppressed and played down uh, is are all examples of just the enormous power that. People call it the pro Israel lobby, the Zionist lobby, Jewish lobby, whatever you want to call it, has in our society that we haven't made movies about this. The captain of the USS Liberty was given the Congressional Medal of Honor for his uh, heroic um, and quick witted activi- uh, 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 action during the attack, which saved the lives, although, th- uh, what, 35 Americans were killed in the attack, the ship was not sunk almost miraculously, because there was a big hole in the side, it could have very easily sunk. Captain McDougall was given the Congressional Medal of Honor. Normally, the Congressional Medal of Honor is given by the President of the United States in person in the White House. This is the only one case in which the Congressional Medal of Honor was given in a quiet, uh, un, uh, 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 ceremony without press, uh, held in a uh, Naval facility and not by the President of the United States, because, uh, well, some people think that President uh, Johnson didn't have the uh, nerve to confront the very man who he had uh, uh, sanctioned his own death in uh, telling the American Navy to withdraw from uh, support against the Israeli attackers during the attack. But anyway, it's a very shameful episode. And. This is a this is even more. I mean, we see this both with the Trump and uh, Biden administrations. This open-ended support for Israel that's a reflection of the tremendous power domestically, so that our politicians put the interests, again, uh, their own interests of getting reelected and of their party and of their reputation here in America above the interests of what's good for the world, for America, for humanity, and just doing what's right.
0: And what was the, uh, the, the official narrative of the 1967 war is that uh, the uh, Arab nations uh, conspired simultaneously to attack Israel in hopes of turning it back over into Arab hands. Is that an accurate uh, portrayal of events? Well,
1: it's, it's, it, people forget it was actually Israel that attacked first, not the Arabs, not the Egyptians. But again, that's all sort of lost in all of this because, boy, those bad Arabs— In fact, one of the very dangerous things, I think, in history is to uh, look at, and it's understandable because this is how people are uh, used to it in our media and so forth, to look at history in terms of good guys and bad guys. Um, This is a very dangerous uh, thing. Leaders should understand, of course, that uh, as in all human beings, and all society, there's good and bad. But it's especially obvious how simplistic and wrong this is because... The good guys of one year can become the bad guys of another year. Uh, America's good guys in World War II uh, included Joseph Stalin. Uh, A few years later, he was a big, big bad guy. Uh, Mao Zedong was a bad guy, and then Nixon visited with him. Well, then he's a sort of not-so-bad guy, I guess. I guess he was never exactly a good guy. Saddam Hussein uh, was more or less acceptable because the United States backed Saddam Hussein when he was fighting a war that he provoked against Iran for eight years. Uh, But uh, then after all that was over, uh, then he's a bad guy. Anyway, this is a very simplistic and dangerous way to look at international affairs. But people, it's it's an easy thing for the public to do. And so if the media can create a good guy, bad guy uh, kind of dichotomy or Manichean uh, good and bad, uh, then that's a shorthand for, for people. And also it's necessary in a democratic society. This is a theme of the book, Advanced to Barbarism, um, that I, I recommend. He points out that in a modern democratic society, in order to get the public, it's necessary to make the propaganda very simplistic, uh, very raw, very childlike, good guys, bad guys. It's not only a bad guy, he's, a, he's, a, he's gonna take over the world, he's gonna kill your children and so forth. Um, But the consequences are, of course, very dangerous and uh, bad and harmful for America and the world. Uh, I mean, as bad as all of those things are in the past, um, this and again, I'm going back to a point that Buchanan made. America is right now carrying out policy in the world that is marked by what the Greeks called hubris, a kind of arrogance, a kind of assumption that we know better. We're the great model for the world. We saw echoes of this in all of the recent presidents, but we see it now in the Biden administration. Uh, Biden, uh, even before he became came into the White House, was talking about how America is once again going to be the leader of the world. Well, this is pretty uh, high stuff coming from uh, a man whose own country has such tremendous problems internally when there's homeless people living all around within blocks of the White House, when the crime rate is just exorbitant here in our our cities, in a country that he says is bedeviled by an entrenched horrible systemic racism so awful we've got to eradicate it, and this is the same country he says is going to be the leader of the world. Uh, As they say, physician heal thyself first before you start telling other countries how to do things. Anyway, the the bigger point is this is dangerous hubris, really. And uh, in the name of democracy or uh, some noble-sounding phrases, uh, countries like this can go to war. It's one of the reasons why, uh, although I was never a fan of Donald Trump, at least he didn't launch any new wars. And he had, I think, a very healthy understanding that war was going to be ruinous for his own legacy. I'm more worried now about the uh, Biden administration doing things in the name of democracy or equality or whatever it happens to be that can be very, very dangerous for the future in the same way that Woodrow Wilson got America into the First World War. In fact, Wilson got America into a lot of wars. Uh, He invaded a lot of other countries too. But anyway, looking from the, and, and that's why to go back to the essential, the points you raised at the very beginning of this talk, It's important to learn from history, important to learn about the grave dangers of countries that act in an arrogant way and a way that does not take into account the real uh, constellation of forces in the world. And we see over and over countries that go beyond what their real power is and end up uh, with with catastrophic consequences for themselves and humanity.
0: What was the Gulf of Tonkin incident?
1: Well, that, I remember that vividly, and I'm very pleased uh, that I, well, the Gulf of Tonkin incident was uh, in 1964. Lyndon Johnson announced to the world that North Vietnamese warships had blatantly and without provocation attacked uh, uh, American ships on international waters in outside, in the Gulf of Tonkin, outside of Vietnam. Now, it later turned out there was sort of an incident. Nobody was killed. Uh, There was some confusion, apparently, of these two incidents. The second one didn't even happen. The first one, it's still a little cloudy. But the important thing is that Johnson took this uh, rather unimportant incident, played it up, exaggerated it, and uh, used it as an excuse to demand from Congress an open-ended, Blank check authorization for whatever military force he thought was necessary to prosecute the war in Vietnam. It's called the Gulf of Tonkin incident. At the time, members of Congress and the press did not fully understand how deceitful Johnson's representation of the reality was. But this resolution, and this is at a time when Americans were far more trusting of their political leaders. They, 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 they could hardly believe that Lyndon Johnson would lie and deceive on this level. And so the Tonkin, Gulf of Tonkin resolution was in the House of Representatives, did not receive a single dissenting vote. It was voted for unanimously. Nobody questioned it. In the Senate of the United States, which had 100 members, there were only two senators that had the, uh, I think, courage to vote against it. And I remember the mood at the time. The mood in the time in America was, boy, if you vote against it, you're practically a traitor to America. That was the mood. The only two senators to vote against it were Ernst Gruning of Alaska and Wayne Morse of Oregon. And I am pleased that as a young man I even met Wayne Morse, who was a very principled uh, man, and a man who should be remembered for his uh, stalwartness, his decency, and his courage in voting against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And he voted against it mainly on the fact that it was a a declaration of war without, it was going to war without a declaration of war. It was unconstitutional. His main objection. See, he didn't know, and people didn't know, just how shabby the justification uh, was given, how shabby the justification was that was given for the resolution. He just knew it was unconstitutional, and that was enough for him to vote against it. But no one else at that time had the courage, except Ernst Bruning of Alaska, to vote against it. Now, later, after the war became more and more obviously a big morass and a mess, and then people said, well, wait a minute here. Let's see, is this really justified? And many uh, people said later, oh, well, I guess we made a big mistake. Well, no kidding. Eventually, even Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of State, said, well, what we did was, w- would have been criminal. If, uh, as he said, if we had lost the war, we would have been prosecuted as war criminals. Uh, But Americans don't like to hear that. People don't want to hear that. They want to think we're the good guys. Whatever we do is good. And it's an embarrassment for many people even to talk about the Vietnam War or the Iraq War in an objective way. Because we give a kind of pass to politicians uh, because wars don't have the terrible consequences they have for others. It's a a remarkable thing that in the United States, uh, Tony Blair is looked upon with uh, disdain and contempt for his support of the Iraq war, Uh, a similar kind of indignation, which I think is entirely justified, is not given by the Americans to George W. Bush or Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton or many others who supported the uh, 2003 U.S. bombing invasion attack against Iraq.
0: What are some important aspects that are often overlooked about the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865?
1: um well one point i would make very strongly is that the uh causes for the secession of the south are not the same as the causes of the civil war now i know that's uh people will say well how did the war began the south seceding did not necessarily mean there was going to war going to be a war the north could have let the south go on the thinking that twofold first um if Uh, part of a country is so determined to leave, they're willing to do all of that, uh, it's not worth uh, trying to force them back in. And second, uh, even if some effort could be made to force them back in, it's not worth killing a lot of people to make that happen. If James Buchanan and some others had been president, uh, the the Confederacy might have become a reality. But Lincoln was determined, as he saw it, to uphold the Constitution and to uphold the integrity of the United States of America, and that made the war inevitable. And I think it also made the defeat of the Confederacy inevitable, because it was only a matter of time, I think, before almost inevitably the much greater military, ultimately military and economic power of the North would prevail, but it took a long time. But that's one of the main points I would make. There's a... I mean I don't uh, I think it's wrong to feel rancor. I think it was good to um, after the Civil War to try to uh, set aside feelings of revenge and uh, hostility uh, towards the south or the north or whatever. Uh, because um, yeah, as bad as these things are, it's better to go, go ahead in the future in this. But today, in fact, there's far more, hatred and rancor about the Civil War than I've seen since, well, the period just after the Civil War. I mean, it's, it's a very sad thing, because now everything has become uh, uh, so tied up with attitudes about race, uh, but that's a kind of silly way of looking, I think, at American Civil War. But um, uh, another point, too, is that no one at the beginning of the Civil War, North or South, anticipated anything like the tremendous loss of life. 20,0, 300,000 lives, young lives lost. The tremendous destruction in the South, all of that. Was it really worth it? Um, I, I question very much whether the price was worth anything, even one part of all of that. Having said that, um, I mean, I, I, ha- I try to have sympathy or understanding for the position both of the North and the South. But I think the main point, I would, to go back to my main point, is... Southern secession did not make war inevitable. What made it inevitable was the decision by Lincoln to use military force to uh, bring back the South uh, forcibly into into the Union. And Lincoln, in a sense, miscalculated too. He thought that pro-federal or pro-Union sympathy was much greater in the South than it actually was. Um, Of course, on both sides, each of them thought that after one battle or two, their side would prevail. The North would defeat the South, or somebody would win. The other side would say, okay, you're right, we give up, uh, let us go, or whatever, we'll just give up. But no, that didn't happen. And that's often the case in, in wars, that the Jap- just as the Japanese miscalculated at Pearl Harbor, the South miscalculated in, bomb- in uh, firing on Fort Sumter. Um, there's many examples in history like that.
0: Did the uh, Spanish sink the USS Maine in 1898?
1: Well, there's a long essay by me on that subject, too, in the Spanish-American War. Um, that's another very, very uh, key event in American history because it represents uh, the moment when the United States went from being a republic focused on its own concerns to being an imperial power. The Spanish-American War... Uh, meant that the United States was going to, uh, and it was justified at the time by many people, to be an imperial power with the grandeur and the uh, sweep and the scope and the pride that Britain and France and Germany and other countries had in being big empires. And America, through the Spanish-American War, uh, acquired uh, the Philippines, uh, Puerto Rico, and a protectorate over Cuba, essentially a colony, although they, it was nominally independent, but essentially a calling of the United States. Um, but the pretext given for the war was the uh, explosion on the USS Maine. Uh, the Spanish desperately asked for an international commission to investigate it. They said we had nothing to do with it. It's impossible to believe even on the face of it that they would do it because they had no motive. The last thing J- Spain wanted was war with the United States, because the United States was more powerful. But, Uh, the American media and American politicians seized upon the sinking of the USS Maine in the Havana Harbor explosion there as a pretext to go to war against uh, Spain and the United States acquired Puerto Rico, Philippines. uh, And is that really, was that really to the advantage of the United States? Was it really a good thing that we did all of that? I think the answer is, is not a very gratifying one, but at the time there was a tremendous amount of, um, Hubris of uh, arrogance—that why well, we're a great power, we're going to be an imperial power, uh, and we're going to have colonies, and we're going to be—and—and a lot of talk about how taking over the Philippines would mean then we'd open up China, and that would be theirs, ours for the taking, and so on and so forth. Um, but again, this was a very seminal event, and it was also the beginning. There was a very large and important anti-war movement in America at that time. That's very interesting, and I, I discussed that in this long essay I wrote, too. And all sorts of very, I think, cogent, good and uh, reasons were given why the United States should not be involved in the, should not uh, prosecute the Spanish-American War, and especially should not try to uh, posit itself as an imperial power and uh, how dangerous it is. For one thing, it's contrary to what we supposedly stand for as a, as a country. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons as well, but... Uh, I'm glad you brought it up, but it's, it's uh, again, on that subject, I recommend the essay I wrote on that subject.
0: Of course, and links to all Mr. Weber's articles will be in the description below. Two more questions for you, Mr. Weber. Uh, what is the most important thing you learned from the contributions of Murray and Rothbard?
1: Murray Rothbard um, was a, a great man. He was arguably the leading uh, intellectual of American libertarianism during his lifetime, Uh, He comes from an interesting background. He grew up in a communist, Marxist uh, youth background as a boy. He said in his, when he grew up, uh, everyone was either a member of the Communist Party or a supporter of the Communist Party in New York, and he grew up in that environment. And for some reason that only heaven knows, he decided at an early age that he didn't go along with that. One of his early memories, he said, was uh, during the Spanish Civil War, Uh, There was a, he was with a group of people in New York, all Jewish, and they're all talking about how terrible Franco is and how we have to support the uh, Republicans in the war against fascism. And and little Murray Rothbard was just a kid, and he had a little high voice then and later in life, and he says, oh, what's what's so wrong with Franco anyway? (laughs) And everybody looked at him with shock. How could you even say that about Franco? I mean, this is, Franco's a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Well, but Murray Rothbard was uh, uh, not only uh, a very scholarly, intelligent man who was able to write with great uh, knowledge and discernment about economics and about history in a scholarly way, he was also a very uh, effective and uh, persuasive polemicist. He could write very punchy essays uh he his his mind was uh, just very impressive in that way uh i had a few meetings with uh rothbard but most i had a long uh discussion with him at his home when he was living in las vegas he, in the last years of his life he was teaching at university of nevada las vegas and i uh talked with him at gr at, at quite a lot of length and but anyway he he was very influential and there's an essay on our website which uh, i recommend by him and i think is very worth reading and holds up very well over time entitled on the importance of revisionism in our time and he talks in this essay uh perhaps more eloquently than i can about why a realistic understanding of history is important to understand our own times and understand Uh, uh, see clearly toward the future. Um, He he deals, especially in this essay, with this very simplistic view that prevails in America about the Second World War. We're the good guys, there's the good guys and bad guys. And Americans may um, argue about, um, there's a lot of agreement that the Iraq War was a a, a mistake, the Vietnam War was a fiasco, First World War, Spanish-American War. Many people are willing to acknowledge, well, it's not. It's not so quite clear cut as it was at the time about those wars, but uh, Murray Rothbard emphasizes that it's also equally simplistic to talk about even the Second World War in this way, which has been glorified over and over in Hollywood and movies and so forth as the good war, uh, the war uh, that. And and I I emphasize this as well because. Uh, our, the legacy or the lessons, quote-unquote, that we're supposed to learn from the Second World War continue to play a very, very important role in the popular narrative and popular idea about history in our America today.
0: Final question. What is the most important thing you learned from the contributions of Ralph Rako?
1: Ralph Rako was uh, another man I'm pleased to have known. Um, he he wrote with uh, great learnedness and um, Uh, discernment about uh, all these questions of this of 20th century uh, history, America's role in both the World Wars about the Second World War. He was a professor for years in um, uh, State University, uh, New York State University in Buffalo and we lived in Buffalo. Uh, But really a great writer as well and I recommend uh, almost anything uh, he he wrote as well. but uh, yeah and his writings over the years covered a great deal of different subjects um he <laughs> as a young man he was a kind of acolyte of Ayn Rand in New York City and uh, he uh, he sort of got into all of this through that connection but uh, he's also a person that had his own colorful anecdotes and stories about Ayn Rand and uh what she what she was like and her outlook and her personality and so forth. But but anyway, but, but to go back more seriously, both Murray Rothbard, Ralph Rako, very, very uh, good, solid historians. And so to go back to a point made earlier with you, um, to understand history, a lot of it depends on who we trust, who who's who's reliable. And Ralph Reiko, Murray Rothbard, Pat Buchanan, uh, Ron Paul is very good about a lot of these issues. Although well, he doesn't talk so much about history, but he's very good about, I think, international affairs. Um, those are all reliable people. Uh, I often put essays, as, as, insofar as I think they're relevant to history and so forth or, or world affairs, on on uh, on our website by uh, by um, um, Ron Paul. Uh, but, uh, and of course, as I said, there's a lot of material by Murray Rothbard on our website, but almost everything he had to say is well worth reading. Even if you don't agree with it, he has an insight and a, um, uh, a perspective that's really very, very valuable. And that's true of Reco as well. And also some of the other uh, historians you've had connected with the Libertarian Institute have been very good. And I, I haven't read it yet, but Scott Horton has this new book about the Iraq War, I think that's uh, I haven't read yet, but I quite uh, based on what I have seen, it's probably very good as well. And um, well, means-
0: th- the good thing about it is it actually covers all seven that the U.S. are currently involved in uh, oh, and uh, their history. It's called okay. "Enough Already: Time to End the War on Terrorism." So it oh. actually goes over his first book, "Fool's Errand," is strictly about Afghanistan and Iraq War One. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, "Fool's Errand" is great because it goes over uh, it, it goes over everything.
1: Well, I I. I One of the sad things, again, it goes back to a point, is Americans, well, if you ask Americans about taxes or about uh, schools or about uh, roads or about vaccinations, everybody has an opinion because it affects all of us directly. We all pay taxes or we certainly, even if we don't pay federal taxes, we pay sales taxes. Everybody's concerned about vaccinations because we hear all, we're all told to get vaccinations and so forth. All those issues affect us in our life, in our schools, either we were in schools or our children are in schools and so forth, social security, everybody has an opinion about that or bureaucracy, but people do not have very often very informed opinions about world affairs, about international politics, about military policy because it doesn't affect us directly. And that's sad and unfortunate because the cost both in monetary, tax terms, money terms, and of human lives, uh, and for our country as a kind of a, as a as a society, is a very important one. And um, it's understandable, as I said, why people might not uh, have the same passion about uh, Afghanistan or about Iraq or whatever or Iran as they do about vaccinations. But the consequences are still very uh, major ones, and. Uh, It's very important, at least for people who are and should be leaders. But unfortunately, our politician, our political system, I regard as so corrupt that, with only a very, very few exceptions, politicians put getting reelected and their stature within the system ahead of what's really good for America and the world.
0: Well. Thank you to everyone for watching. Uh, Keith and I don't tread on anyone as well as the Libertarian Institute. Check out the Institute for Historical Review. All links will be in the description below as well as uh, my page at the Libertarian Institute. Mr. Weber, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you.